Can we invite you to turn, please, for our scripture reading to First Peter and chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, and we break in at verse 3 of the chapter. <clears throat> First Peter 1 and 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Ending there at verse 12, we know the Lord will add his own blessing to the reading of his word. Which things the angels desire to look into Angels are fascinating creatures, aren't they? Spirit beings, very powerful beings at that. Don't know exactly what they look like. I'm sure we have our own thoughts uh, of those creatures um, made in the image of God, just as we are, flying about at God's bidding, carrying out his every command. In heaven... There is an innumerable company of these created beings. John speaks of them in Revelation 5.11 as numbering 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Now, 10,000 times 10,000, that's 100 million, plus thousands more, millions more maybe. I was just thinking this afternoon, each one of us has a guardian angel. You might not be aware of it. For the Lord has put somebody in charge to look after you. Whenever a believer is finished in this life and is taken home to glory, does that mean his angel becomes redundant? Maybe he's then given a new post, maybe a new baby, 
comes into the world. And that, I don't know, maybe that angel is then employed to look after that one. Whatever. They're all there doing the Lord's bidding. Absolutely perfect in holiness. And they're, they're perfect in their service for God as they worship him and obey him at all times. We know that Lucifer was an angel in heaven, but because of pride rising up in his heart, wherein he thought to make himself as God, he was cast out of into the earth and will one day be banished to the lake of fire forever. But so too will be all those human beings who have lived to serve the devil and have rejected God's offer of mercy. That's something every unconverted soul should think of. Those angels that inhabit eternity never sin. Yet in spite of all our sin and all our tendencies towards sinful practices, is it not striking that God has so set his love upon us, not on the angels, They've never sinned, but he set his love on us and has gone to the absolute extreme to demonstrate that love by slaying his own son and raising him up again. He never did that for the angels. He did it for us. There's a lot we don't know about these creatures that we can't picture them. As I said, going about God's bidding, they do so with absolute obedience. They're perfect in their nature and in their behavior. Psalm 34, 7 should be an encouragement to the child of God. It says, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him. So you're always in good company. Psalm 91, 11, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. You ever worry in despair? You ever get down under? You ever think you're, you're deserted and, and left alone? No, you're not. The Lord has put an angel in charge, somebody there to look after you. Having said that, if somebody decides to spread some malicious gossip about you, is it not likely that your guardian angel will go and report that back to the other angels? Good thing to watch the tongue, isn't it? Anyway, while these creatures... Um, are somewhat strange and interesting to us. We, in turn, must surely be interesting to them. They're curious as to what God sees in us. This is a point that, that Peter brings out here in this chapter. He begins by recollecting how that we, that's those who are saved, are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. These are puzzling things that the angels desire to look into. The gospel of saving grace is something of a mystery to them. I'm sure they can't understand what would drive God to so love men, to save them in the manner he does, especially men who hate their creator. 
I think of of Saul of Tarsus, a man who actually thought he was doing God a favor and, and ran about persecuting Christians, putting some in jail, beating others, actually allowing some to be killed. What did God see in him? And yet, the Lord saved that man and made him one of the greatest blessings the church of Jesus Christ has ever known. Again, the the song of the redeemed in heaven is a song the angels can't sing because they don't fully understand what redemption is and they can never experience it. You and I can. So there are things that we understand that they want to look into. They're, They're anxious to learn about matters that you and I probably take almost for granted. A couple of things that I... I thought we might consider for a moment or two. Firstly, and it's appropriate this time in the year, the cradle in the manger. You have to try and picture yourself as being in the company of the angels there in glory. They've never known anything but sweet bliss of that place that's so pure, so clean, so holy, so free from any defiling thing. And we can only imagine it because we'll never know it in this life. But there's not even a hint of sin in heaven. And that's hard for us to visualize no matter where we go on this earth. You see sin on every hand, don't we? Now all the sounds these beings ever hear are the sounds of praise resounding around the courts of paradise where all is light and all is perfect. What must it be to be there? But imagine what a stir there must have been when the angels learned that God is going to send his son down to earth to take upon himself human form and live as one of his creation. Why would he do that? Is it so that he will get to know his creation better? That maybe sounds like a good idea. But then all those men and women down there on earth, all they can think of is sin. And they have sinned against their creator. Why would God cause his son to become one of them and go down and live among them? What's God trying to do here? I mean, didn't Adam and Eve display disobedience? Didn't they disobey God? Consequently, every soul born into this world is born in sin. Wish we could get that truth home to people. How many live, even in this province, that with all this gospel preaching, how many live in this land? And they think, I don't do anybody any harm, I'm fit for heaven. You see, A person is not a sinner because he does something wrong. He does wrong because he's a sinner. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. We're born sinners. And that's the first truth that men need to get a hold of. But why would God want anything to do with them? The angels must be wondering. They're getting curious, but then God explains he's he's sending a son down among them to die for them so that he can set them free from the consequences of their sin. And that's really got them thinking. This doesn't make sense to 
to the angels. Why would God do such a thing? Send his own son, get him to take on human form as a babe? And grow up in a world that hates him with the intention of one day dying so that sinners wouldn't have to die. That's really got the angels scratching their heads. Again, we've got to try and think like them here. What, what, what sort of a scheme is this that God's planning? One minute heavens ablaze with light and the next minute that light shining on a wee cattle shed down there in Bethlehem. And the word goes around the streets of glory. Away in a manger, no crib for his bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the bright sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. Well, this is something they must surely look into. And so they did. Down they came. A great host of them came from the high halls of bliss. They surround the, the Judean hills there, desiring earnestly to, to look into what's transpiring on planet Earth. Well, what do you suppose astonished them most about this great phenomenon? Is it not the fact that nobody seemed to care? And so the heavenly host raised their voices and awoke those slumbering hills around Bethlehem, saying, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Glory to God in the highest. But you know, apart from a few, a few shepherds out in the fields, nobody else seemed interested. Oh, it was a night of mixed emotions for the angels, wasn't it? For here was the one they knew as the Son of God. And now he's only a tiny babe in arms. His coming into the world in such a fashion is truly amazing. But then the disregard shown by the world, it must leave the angels aghast. And so they returned to heaven. And as you might expect, other angels would be asking, well, how did you get on? Did our, how did earth receive the Savior? Did they flock to see him? Did they have to curtail the crowds in case somebody get tramped in the crush? And sadly, the report carries no such tidings. Only a handful came out to see him, and they were shepherds who happened to be out there in the fields when they saw the, host, the heavenly host in the sky above them. Why, there wasn't even a place that he and his mother and Joseph could, could spend the night in any kind of comfort. They ended up in a stable. And no, Herod hasn't abdicated his throne to make way for the king of the Jews. In fact, he's so mad, he, he has put out a decree that every child two-year-old and under should be slain. He tried to kill the Christ child. And they're thinking, is, is this what sin has done to mankind? That they would treat the Son of God with such disdain. The angels are flabbergasted at the whole spectacle. God becomes man in order to save man from his sin. Yet man rejects him. Doesn't want him. Does that not then suggest that man is voluntarily heading for hell? That he wants to go there? He doesn't want to be saved from the consequences of his sin? 
Does it make sense, beloved? No wonder the angels won't look into this. How disrespectful. It's unimaginable. But you know, beloved, that attitude, the attitude of the world at that time, hasn't changed one iota. Because the attitude of the world this evening is just the same. Men still don't want the Christ who died to save sinners. Oh, they want their sin. And multitudes, no doubt, want some kind of euphoric experience when they leave this scene of time. That is, those who believe in life after death. Many don't. But multitudes do, and, and they all want some hunky-dory experience. But don't bring Christ into it. They don't want him. Tell me, beloved, do you want him? How many can sit through gospel meetings week after week, year after year, and say no to Christ? Is he deserving of such rebuff? Another thought here, there was a conflict in the wilderness. Thirty years have passed since the Christ of God came into this world. He has been busy growing up through childhood, youth, manhood. No doubt thousands of books could have been written with all the wonders that he did during those years that aren't recorded for us in Scripture. But anyway, the angels have been watching and listening with close interest as the babe, the boy, the teenager, the young man walked among men and did so much good for so many people. But what gripped their attention at this stage? And remember, 30 years have passed since his birth. What gripped their attention now was the conflict between the Christ and Satan. They knew now in heaven about the fall of man. So interest is growing now that a new conflict is about to take place. The Son of God was going now to meet Satan in a waste howling wilderness. Where he, after he had fasted right down to the level of starvation. We read in Matthew 4 and in Luke chapter 4 about our Savior's temptation in the wilderness. But I wonder if we fully realize the, the condition the Lord was in at that time. I mean, 40 days and nights without food. His physical resources were all but gone. Having hungered for that length of time, his life must have been hanging by a thread, physically speaking. And in that condition, an ordinary man would more than likely give in to anything at the prospect of having food to eat. Remember the devil said, turn these stones into bread. You're hungry. Eat, eat. Ah, but then, this was no ordinary man. This was the God man. Lying behind Jericho is the Jordan Valley. It lies well below sea level and in the middle of it, there rises up that mount where this temptation occurred. The higher you climb the hill, the more aware you become of the barrenness of the surrounding countryside. 
There's just nothing by way of vegetation. All the ground is stony, dry, and dusty. And so it was there that Satan came against Christ with these three temptations. The same three as it happens that he came before Eve with in the Garden of Eden. That is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Because the Savior was now physically starving with hunger, Satan tried to tempt him to change some of those stones into food. He needed food at this point in time. But being God, he's able to resist the devil's temptation. Then taking him to a high mountain, the devil had him view the kingdoms of the world. And he said to Christ, if you just worship me, I'll give you all this. He was seriously underestimating the power of Christ to resist sin. How puffed up with himself Satan really was to think that the Son of God would bow to him. It's true, of course, Satan is the God of this world, but the Lord Jesus will never, will never bow to him. In fact, one of these days, one of these days soon, Satan and all his supporters will bow to Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. We're living in a day of where the the spirit of Antichrist is all around us. Good is evil. Evil is good. This is where we're at today. People are going out of their way to be offended. I mean, the, the, the murder of the unborn, it, it has made the news again in recent days. Isn't it diabolical? And then you had this conversion therapy, these gender issues. Isn't it awful, the, the, this, the, the garbage they're pumping into the minds of little children these days? I read somewhere there just recently, I think it's in California, They have an after-school club. It's known as the Satan Club. The mind boggles. What are they doing to young children in a situation like that? And, oh, we could could talk all night about the the awful goings-on. But basically, today, there is no fear of God in the third instance, the devil brought the Savior to the, uh, the city where he tried to have him jump from the, the pinnacle of the temple. Of course, he wanted him to jump to his death. But that scheme failed too. The angels, however, didn't get involved in these temptations. For it wasn't until the devil was defeated that they then moved in to strengthen the now exhausted Savior. Matthew 4.11 reads, The devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. They certainly were desirous to look into how he had triumphed over the adversary, and especially under such trying conditions. This was truly the God-man. He had endured the physical, moral, and spiritual temptation, and had triumphed over Satan, and how this caused great curiosity amongst the angels. 
And again, we might suppose that when these ministering angels returned to heaven, their colleagues may well have been asking, well, who came to help him at this stage? Who was there to, to, to stand by him? Were any of his family members there? Did his friends come when he needed them most? And when they'd be told, no, he had to endure it all alone, they must have been wondering, what sort of man is this, this God-man? Or what sort of people are those people down there on earth? Beloved, this is the one who endured all temptation and overcame the power of the devil so that he could bring that same victory to you and me when the devil comes to us with temptation. Aren't we forever being tempted to one sin or another? How could we resist if Christ had been a failure? It wouldn't be possible for us. But thank God he did resist, and that's why he can give you and me that victory whenever temptation comes our way. The Christian can resist the devil in the name of Christ. And no blessed deliverance. Ah, but then the unsaved, they don't have this resistance. They don't know Christ, but they can take encouragement in that he is able to deliver if you would just cast yourself upon him. Isn't it so? The, the devil will tell you, oh, don't, don't you worry about repenting of your sin, not just yet. You need to enjoy life a bit more first. Doesn't he want you to linger a while longer before you come and be saved? There's a dear man in Lisburn, and they've prayed for that man must be 50 years. And week after week, he sat under the sound of the gospel. And week after week, walked out rejecting Christ. They wondered, would he ever be saved? And only, only two years ago, when he was approaching 90 years of age, did that man actually come bend the knee and trust Christ as a savior. His funeral was this past week. Isn't the Lord merciful? But beloved, maybe somebody listening, you're nowhere near 90. And maybe you've no notion of getting saved. Maybe you think, I'll leave it till I'm near 90. Listen, this book says, boast not thyself of tomorrow. I know it's not what a day may bring forth. Aren't we always hearing these days of the suddenness with which death comes unexpectedly? We can't boast of anything. We cannot boast even of a deathbed experience. It might not be possible. There's a time when a person can be saved and a time when he can't. God's time is always now. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You cry to God, beloved, for grace to resist the devil and come and receive Christ as your great deliverer while you still can. There's a word of caution in Genesis 6 and 3, and God says, My spirit shall not always strive with man. And if he's been striving with you, he may be striving with you tonight. 
but it might be for the last time. And tomorrow, you could feel relieved. But it would be a sad situation if the Lord has left you, never to be troubled again. God's time is now. Let's move on here. There's another thought. The cloister in Gethsemane, just outside Jerusalem, you have the Mount of Olives. And so the place forms a sort of a natural retreat from the pressures of life. It's a place where the Savior used to, he loved to withdraw himself from the, the busy schedule. Not quite as quiet today because of traffic noise in the distance, but back then it was a lovely quiet retreat and a very suitable place for anybody wishing to spend time in private meditation. And our Savior would have gone there many a time to pray. Mark tells us in his gospel that the Lord Jesus went there with his three closest friends. Mark 14, 33 has it that he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And that expression, very heavy, it means deeply weighed down or depressed. And he said, the Son of God depressed? The Christ of God? Only a short time previous to this, he, he was singing a, a hymn in that upper room. Ah, but now he's weighed down with anxiety, but not because of himself or his own circumstances, but because of your sin and mine. As he gazed into that cup that he knew he now must partake of, that God was setting before him, which he knew he must drink if we were ever to be saved. He's overwhelmed by the, the wrath of God against our sin that he must now embrace. There's an old hymn captures the thought like this. O Lord, what thee tormented was our sin's heavy load. We had the debt augmented which thou must pay in blood. And the angels desired to look into this for it was beyond their understanding. Their beloved so identified with all the horror and wickedness of our sin as to actually be made sin for us. He actually came close to death in that garden but he mustn't die there. Not in Gethsemane. He must go to the hill crag of Calvary. It's not far away from that garden, but he must make it to that hill. But again, angels ministered unto him and then returned on high. Again, we can just imagine the, the conversation as they go back to heaven. Some would ask, well, who was there this time to help him in his anguish of soul? Did his friends stand by him? And they say, what do you mean he was alone? Was there nobody to stand with him? With all he was facing, was there not a single one of Adam's fallen race to wipe the sweat of his brow or hold his hand in support? Didn't he have three friends? Oh, yes, they had he, Peter, James, and John, but they fell asleep. Beloved, listen. Here was the Son of God on death row, and it was your sin and mine that put him there. And have you fallen asleep? Is it nothing to you that you're the one that should have been crucified? Not him. Yet he took your place and died for you. 
No wonder the angels are curious. But are you concerned? Notice another thought here, the crypt in the garden. All these are things the angels desire to look into. Twelve legions of warrior angels in heaven, armed to the teeth with drawn swords in their hands, straying over the battlements of heaven, watching these things going on. They're waiting for just one word from him, and they'll be at his side to deliver him in a flash. They watch and they listen as that kangaroo court was was conducted and they, they blindfolded the Savior, punched him in the face, they crowned him with thorns, they plowed his back open like a farmer's field with a cat of nine tails. They proclaim him guiltless, yet they condemn him to death. And he's marched like a felon up that hillside with, where they spike him to a Roman gibbet. The angels are watching. Just, just one word is all they need and they'll be there to deliver him. But the word never came. And there they stand on heaven's balcony watching down in utter amazement as he took the scorn and the ridicule. They watched and they waited but he died without ever asking for their aid. And they saw his friends come and take his broken body lay it reverently in a tomb with their fragrant spices. They saw that heavy stone being rolled across the door where the soldiers came to make sure nobody would tamper with his body. And earth went through three sunsets and dark dreary nights with his incorruptible body lying in that crypt, dug into the rock face. But then it happened. The conqueror returned, re-entered his body, unseen by the guards, untouched by even the faintest hint of decay. He shed the grave clothes and simply walked through that tightly sealed door and vanished. And two angels came, probably Michael and Gabriel, and broke the seal on that great stone, rolled it to one side, not to let the Savior out, but to let men in to see that he was already gone. What are they waiting for? The angels sat there and waited. What were they waiting for? They were waiting to see all his disciples come to the tomb to see his glorious resurrection because he told them he would rise again. But did they come? Oh, a couple of women came. Well, they were only coming with more spices to lay beside the dead body. They didn't expect to find him gone. What was wrong with these people? Didn't anybody believe that he would rise again when he said he would? And again, two angels went back to heaven to report, alas, his friends are all at a loss. None of them came to see him risen. In fact, one of, them, one of the women actually talked with him, didn't even recognize him. She thought he was a gardener, thought he had hid the body somewhere. And these angels marvel at the unbelief and the stubbornness of people's hearts. Do you believe it, beloved? Of course you do. But have you come to the place where you put your dependence for eternity upon this work of redemption that he has just completed? Or are you still rejecting him? 
still saying it's nothing to me that he died for my sins. Do you for one minute, beloved, think you'll make heaven by your own efforts? It'll not happen. The angels desire to look into that cradle in the hay, the conflict in the wilderness, the cloister in the garden, the crypt in this other garden, and lastly, there was the concealment in the clouds. Verses 11 and 12. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed, not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you. By them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. When God came down among his people in the wilderness in Old Testament times, he wrapped himself with a most unusual cloud. They called it the Shekinah glory. That cloud sat upon the mercy seat in the tabernacle. That same cloud sheltered people from the blistering heat of the midday sun by night taking on the appearance of fire. It was a token of God's presence with his people. And under it, they felt secure. That was back then. But now, the cloud is back. And swirling over the Mount of Olives, the temple's not needed now, the veil has been rent in two. God has come down among his people in person. Forty days and forty nights have passed since his resurrection. And now the cloud's just waiting to receive him and transport him back to glory. And the angels who had been arrayed in the night sky to welcome his birth those 33 years earlier are now waiting again to receive him back home. Why? Because his work is done. Strangely enough, he wasn't alone this time. Something like 120 of his followers were standing there with him. And on that mount, he raised his hands and pronounced his benediction upon his people before he silently but surely began to ascend. As you might have guessed, two of his angels were there standing by. And their word of glad assurance to those people standing around, looking up, was, he'll be back again. And at that, they too were gone. Now there's a subject they desire to look into. Those two went back and rejoined the great company on high that welcomed the Savior back to his place in heaven. And they saw him sat down on the great throne in heaven. He is seated now because the work of redemption is done. There's no more to do. What a journey it had been for the Christ of God. What an experience. You know, the angels are still talking about it in heaven. Yet, down here on earth, it's so difficult to get people interested. This happened 2,000 years ago. 
Thank God for those who are still talking about it. God's own people. And we never tire of talking about it. But how many more are totally disinterested? Means nothing to them. How sad. I wonder. As the angels of God look down upon you tonight, what do they see? What's your reaction? What's your attitude towards this Christ who went through so much to save you from going to hell? To give you a place in heaven for all eternity? That'll never end, you know. Is it not an amazing work of redemption that Christ carried out here? But is that amazing work going to be lost on somebody listening to this message? Is, are, are the angels going to have to say it was all a waste of time? Because there's one sitting there doesn't want to know. After all they've heard, still don't want to know. Beloved, to turn a blind eye to this, to turn a deaf ear to the Savior's pleading voice when he says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. To ignore that is to volunteer for hell forever. Why would anybody ever go that road what are the angels thinking tonight? Will there be joy among them as one listening to God's word tonight decides, I'm coming. I'll take this Savior tonight. I'll take him to be my Savior. I'll finish with sin. I'll start out now for heaven and for home. Will the angels carry that news back to glory? They can, if you'll come. But the ball is in your court, beloved. What will you do with Jesus Christ? Oh, I pray God will give you the grace, the sense, the wisdom to come even now, just the way you are. Take God at his word. He has promised him that cometh to me. I'll in no wise cast out. Why not then come tonight? Finish with your sin. Lay hold upon Christ. Know the joy of sins forgiven. Start out on your way to heaven. And you put your head on the pillow tonight. And you'll know that if you don't open your eyes in this world again, you'll open them in glory. And you'll be glad you came. And God give you grace to trust him. Let us bow together in prayer as we close, please. Our God and Father, we we'll thank thee for the person of the Lord Jesus. We we'll thank thee for his coming into this world giving us our first Christmas.
But more importantly, Lord, we thank thee for the purpose of his coming, and that to give his life as a ransom in order to redeem poor, helpless, undone sinners. Thank you, Lord, for the invitation to the whosoever will. Thou hast promised, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, give that needed grace, we pray thee. Draw, <coughs> draw souls unto thyself, even this night. May that dear one who, who's been listening, may they find it in their heart even now to, to finish with sin and seize upon Christ tonight, not to put it off any longer. May there be, may there indeed be rejoicing in heaven as sinners come and make their peace with God. Bless thy word to this end we ask of thee. Part us in thy fear and with thy favor. Speak on to every waiting heart and grant that Christ might indeed be glorified in the salvation of souls. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.